GM 105.5 Low Power FM on your radio dial, Missoula Community Radio. And we're streaming it at 1055KFGM, all one word, dot org. And now podcast on Anchor FM or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. So, in the virtual studio, we have Catherine Quinayahu and Mark Anderlich, people with stories to tell and a lot to say. Hey, Jim and Catherine. Hello. Well, and welcome, Catherine, to the show. Thank yes, you welcome, coming. Catherine. So, we broadcast terrestrially from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. But we are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes or wherever we also happen to be in this moment. Yes. Uh, but not, and I am in New Orleans at the ancestral homeland of the Chittimaca people and a number of other tribes. And Mark, where are you today? I'm in, I'm in Missoula. Aha, uh-huh, homeboy. And how about you, uh, Catherine? I'm in Helena. Oh, okay. I guess that's Salish people just as well. So, well, and we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can, and by wearing masks when you do go out into public, and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we have enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we want to give old Mick a shout out as he is at home too. Hey Mick. Yes Mick, take care of yourself and have a wonderful 2021. Yes. So this is our year in review show, so we don't have a word of the week, Mark? Well, maybe our word of the week should be good riddance to uh, the year 2020. What do you think? It's two words, but um, <laughs> yes, sir, fits. Yeah, well, but... Ex- ex- it's ex- twice as bad as any year I can ever remember, so two words right. are needed to describe it for sure. Well, except, of course, the uh, 1% who made out like bandits and increased their wealth this year by unimaginable amounts. Unimaginable amounts. Two words that say it all. Uh, Yes, they did. Well, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, We will pick up on reviewing that story later in the show. But we are going to review the year in more or less chronological order. Sanders campaign at the beginning of 2020, then followed closely by the biggest news of the year, COVID-19 pandemic, including the economic damage caused by Congress's failure to act adequately to it. And we'll talk about the police murder of George Floyd and the rebellion throughout the country that followed. Then we will look more locally and review efforts in Missoula 
to redirect police funding. It didn't say defund. Thank you. And <laughs> Montana efforts to protect prisoners from COVID and census malpractice. Next, we will review the remarkable year in worker strikes all over the world. And then look at what the election results in Montana and nationally bode for 2021. It's going to be busy hour in 20 minutes. That's Yes, that's it, Jim. Or should I say two hours? Two hours, yes. And, um, and that's a lot to chew, but let's jump right into it. Um, if you recall, Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders made a second run for the Democratic nomination for president. In the first primaries and caucuses of the year, Sanders was on a winning roll. He won the most votes in the Iowa caucuses, but due to the utter failure of the Democratic National Committee sourced software, they never announced the final results. They may not even know to this day what exactly who voted, which is kind of set the tone. Yeah, exactly. And it sort of set the tone for kind of system failure and incompetence for the whole rest of the year. But anyway, um, instead, the media declared South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, otherwise known as Mayo Pete, uh, as the winner. In the end, according to our collective knowledge at Wikipedia, Biden and then Buttigieg each received more delegates than Sanders, even though Sanders won the most votes. Uh, then Sanders went on to win, or at least what they could figure, right? Um, then Sanders went on to win the following primary in New Hampshire and the dramatic caucuses in Nevada. Sanders' electoral strength obviously scared the DNC, Democratic National Committee, when former Vice President Joe Biden, who had up to then campaigned poorly, and I think I'm being generous there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He was getting his 3 to 4% like he has every other time. <laughs> Yeah, he won a surprise. It was a surprise victory in South Carolina. They, they, they weren't predicting it. Uh, and he had 61% of the black vote. Uh, it seemed then that the mainstream media went all in with Biden. Uh, the message in the media was that Sanders was too scary as a socialist and that Biden was a far safer bet to beat Trump. And many Democratic voters uh, bought that story and proceeded, you know, to vote accordingly. Former President Barack Obama also called Biden to congratulate him on his victory in South Carolina, a favor he did not afford Sanders when he won the previous primaries, according to a Bloomberg article on March 1st. And according to the New York Times, also on March 1st, Obama was on a call with both Buttigieg and Biden after the South Carolina primary, where Obama uh, said, uh, uh, oh, well, and this is the quote from the article. Mr. Obama did not specifically encourage Mr. Buttigieg to endorse Mr. Biden in the New York Times speak, right? Um, said the Democratic Party official who insisted on anonymity to discuss private conversations. But Mr. Obama did note that Mr. Buttigieg has considerable leverage at the moment and should think about how best to use it. Should Mr. Buttigieg endorse Mr. Biden on Monday, it could reshape the Democratic primary if many of his supporters shift to Mr. Biden, creating a more formidable centrist challenge to Mr. Sanders' progressive movement, end quote. The next day, three of the major centrist candidates, Buttigieg, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and millionaire Tom Steyer, dropped out before the next primaries called Super Tuesday, and they all endorsed Biden. 
According to Politico on March 2nd, Sean Sean Shaw, Buttigieg's top African-American campaign surrogate and a former state representative from Tampa, Florida, said Buttigieg's interest in backing Biden had to do with stopping Trump and making a statement against Sanders' proposed policies. Shaw said, Joe Biden needed to show he could win the nomination by winning big in South Carolina, and he won big. Pete wants to stop Bernie Sanders. This isn't about him. It's about the future of our country and the nomination, end quote. Yeah, I'm concerned that the people that were at the core of the story and knew what was going on um, aren't going to tell us for decades what really happened. (laughs) It's so sensitive and it's such a hot button that, um, you know, they, they, they cavalierly made a decision about what America's future was going to be. It's, you know, it's not unlike the mobsters in New Orleans, where I am, um, deciding that uh, John Kennedy was going to be a problem and he should be sidelined. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty grave thing to say, but that's that's what happened. Yeah. Now, do I disagree with their decision? No. I, it's, you know, what was Bernie really going to do? Because he has a Republican governor, and if he ran for president, there'd be one less... Um, you know, a Democratic senator, maybe it would, you know, screw with the chances for everybody to have a Senate we could work with. Hmm. Yeah, Kath- Catherine, you've studied oh, Catherine, this. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, you've studied this. Well, the Iowa caucus concerned me on two levels. One, the whole shadow app aspect mm-hmm. that the media was originally relaying um the DNC didn't have anything to do with, which was contradicted by the contract coming to light. Yahoo received a copy of that. And in that document, it clearly stated um, that the DNC was in control and aware of everything that was going on with Shadow App. They, They had full participation in it. But what happened by declaring and Pete self-declaring that he was the victor in that, that gave him an artificial bump going into New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. But the media seemed wholly complicit in playing along with. And when you look at the media aspect, part of this, I, I love data. I'm very data-driven. <laughs> so I'm always collecting maps and infographics, pie charts, uh, a variety of things. There was a, a graphic from a, a report that had been done years ago, uh, media consolidation, talking about the illusion of choice, that mm-hmm. in, in 1983, 90% of America's media was owned by 50 companies. By 2011, that same 90% was controlled by six companies. Now, in 2020, of the American media is controlled by four media giants. Mm -hmm. And they're they're very much complicit. They were complicit in 2016 election. Uh, What we know from the Pied Piper email um, that was part of the WikiLeaks involving Hillary Clinton's campaign where they directed the media, their sources, 
in order to run Trump as a viable candidate and speak about him as though he were a viable candidate, thinking he'd be easier to beat. Yeah. And so this shadow app debacle, which reported that um, Iowa caucus stating that Pete Buttigieg had the the win, <laughs> I'm looking at the numbers and how does 21 Point three percent of the vote in the initial alignment beat Bernie Sanders twenty four point seven percent. Right, and on the final alignment, Bernie Sanders had twenty six point five over Pete Buttigieg's twenty five point one. Is is this new math, new DNC math? Because <laughs> I'm not seeing it. Well, and and also in in how I what I read from the. Uh, from the article was that uh, in the end, Biden even got more delegates than Sanders in Iowa. Yes, Biden had 14.9% of the vote on the initial alignment and 137 on the final, and yet he managed to receive 14 of the delegates versus Sanders, who won the votes and only received nine. Yeah, and that's, that, that sets the tone, doesn't it? Um, and for for the rest of what you know, what is to come, I think. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, there were two excellent Democrats that were head of the FCC, and then um, and then the end of May of 1983, you know, Ann Jones, a Republican who has zero experience in that field, and her resume is probably. He could probably put on a postage stamp. Uh, was in charge until 1987. So I. It's funny how the Reagan world was full of nincompoops that that had zero credentials and only faith and fealty with the boss man in a white hat. Yeah, and the you know. Um, th- the the fact that you know we've covered before that the you know the the country is more of an oligarchy than it is a real democracy i think is right. is really not even that much controversial anymore um except for you know uh, some people who refuse to see see the uh yeah. the, the big decline in what's happened and um and i think that uh you know this is how it works, right? The, 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 I think the challenge for the oligarchs, right, and, and, their, and their, you know, right-hand men and women is to how to make this, you know, without losing legitimacy, how do you, you know, uh, game, the, game the results? And so you have these secret... I mean, for one, I, it's beyond me why we have all these complicated, you know, uh, voting machines around the country. Not so much in Montana. Montana has the machines are reader reading machines, right? But um, which have their own problems. But you know, there are some places you go in and you vote on a machine, and you have no idea whether there's no record of your vote, and um, and so there's. Uh, and we've covered before the election, I think you remember this, Jim, that like maybe 20, 
seven percent. I'm me. I might have misremembered this, but twenty-seven percent of American people don't have total confidence in our election system. I mean, that's a that's a legitimacy crisis right there. I mean, I, I yes. That's a, that's a huge huge problem for the oligarchs. And it's a problem that's not going to go away for generations. Once you spoil a democracy, once and you rob the citizenry faith in their own government and their own opportunity to express their uh, choices, it just doesn't come back. Right. Not right away. That's for sure. You know, it's almost like it's, it's a generational issue. Once you have been cheated, you lose faith in all of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so another comment, um, too, I think that, um, you know, in some fashion, I think, I don't know, I hate to say this, but um, it, it, it may have been in some ways a blessing in disguise that in some fashion that Sanders, you know, was denied victory. Um, and, and I don't mean to sort of legitimize what was done, but in, in one way, though, and Jim, you kind of like spoke to it a little bit, is that in some sense um, there is, uh, you know, the people who supported Sanders, which is a huge number of people in this country. I mean, he ended up getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, after the, you know, Sanders dropped out after the April 7th Wisconsin primary, and oh, he suspended his campaign. That's what he called it. And uh, But despite suspending his campaign with four months left in the primary, so we only gotten halfway through the primaries, uh, Sanders still managed to finish a strong second to Biden, far ahead of the rest of the largest field of candidates running for a major party nomination for president in U.S. history. That was the biggest field. And then according to Wikipedia, Sanders ended up with nearly 10 million votes and 28% of the pledged delegates, even despite all the shenanigans. Um, yes. And But I think that, you know, if Sanders would have won, the sort of uh, the neo, you know, the neoliberals and the neoconservatives and the, you know, and the the plain, you know, just the plain uh, uh, henchmen in the Democratic and Republican parties, they would have thrown every, they would have undermined, they would have joined forces to undermine, you know, Sanders. And I don't think as a, this is where I think we weren't ready as citizens to be able to defend a presidency such as Sanders uh, could have been uh, from, you know, just the vicious assaults and the, you know, the military industrial complex going after them and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of enemies out there, very powerful enemies, and winning an election doesn't do away with those enemies. I know. Well, look what happened to Henry Wallace. You know, he was going to be the vice president in 44, yeah. and people thought, oh, this, you know, we don't want this person that's, that's uh, you know, that's a condiment on the, on, on FDR that adds, adds a little pizzazz to his, some features of uh, his interests and his goals, you know, this guy could be president. 
it's not funny any longer. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's find a guy who um, we can control a little better. Right, right. Yep. And that was Truman, right? And, and the Truman years were really remarkable in that he was he was more of a Henry Wallace than people presumed was possible. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So I the, think you're absolutely right, Mark. That Sanders wouldn't, you know, if in spite of what a wonderful proponent and spokesperson for his beliefs and the beliefs of a lot of us, uh, it could have been really ugly because you know you throw a label on somebody and and misrepresent everything they do, and it was all for nothing. Yeah. Well, we can come back to this, you know, toward the end of the show when we talk about, you know, the election again. Um, And uh, uh, but I do think that right now, if, you know, I'll just sort of finish with this thought that part of what we need to do is not only just have people running like Sanders on a unabashed uh, Democratic Socialist or progressive or uh, whatever name you want to call it, uh, it, you know, unabashed platform. But we also have to have, we also have to organize with, with ourselves uh, ways of defending and promoting that, that agenda as well. Um, so, um, so moving to the next issue, um, and that's, uh, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic and the, and the economy. Um, we first reported on this show about the outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China on February 8th. Um, that was even before you came on the show, I think, Jim. Um, and, that, and that was... Ironically, I was, um, in Washington, <laughs> I was in Washington State at the hospital where the first case was found on the Western Hemisphere. Oh, really? Oh, and, I, and they had an ice storm that week, so I kept going back and forth to the lab because they had there wasn't people to uh, you know to sort out and process my the um, you know samples that I brought for them. So wow, wow. I was thinking, what have I done? Yeah, well, so we should maybe talk about that sometime on another show, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's that, yeah that's kind of well in in the whole story about uh how the how the seattle doctor basically ig, uh, ignored the uh, orders of the centers for disease control and tested tested all these samples that he was gathering and and he was basically forbidden to he did he went and did it anyway and found out these were the first cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. So, (laughs) so there you go. Um, so there's a lot, lot to that story anyway. Um, so we've been, but we've been following it since February 8th and that was fully a month and a half before the, the lockdowns in, in this country and the, the poor initial response by the Trump administration coupled with the partial dismantling of the U S public health system, led to one of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19 in the world. <clears throat> By the end of 2020, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the U.S. had nearly 20 million people who had tested positive, and nearly 350,000 of them have died from COVID-19. That's 24% of all the positive cases and 19% of all the deaths in the world, 
And as we've said every show since then, right, with only 4% of the world's population in the world's wealthiest nation, that is a failure of epic proportions. Yeah, and the numbers were uniform. You can't say it was a glitch. It right. was an unvarying line. Right, yep. It didn't, it was, a, it was level, it was linear, you know, yep. having with the same proportions month after month after month. Yep, that's right. We kept doing the same things wrong, or there would have been a deflection somewhere. Well, and we have that, oh, go ahead, Catherine, yeah. While all this stuff started rolling out with the fact that information coming out of the Trump administration was politically motivated in a number of cases. So what I had to start doing and being a a natural investigative (laughs) researcher, I was going to the WHO's website, the World Health Organization, Mm -hmm. and researching academic papers were coming out of other countries as to what was taking place because I couldn't trust that we were getting all the information here and what was going on with corporate media's referencing of what was coming out of the Trump administration. I I wasn't going to sit back on my heels and try to wait until somebody spoon-fed me whatever information they wanted. Mm-hmm. So I was aggressively researching other um, sources. So while they were staying here in the United States, that people in general and the public didn't need to wear masks, that it could cause a shortage of masks for health professionals, the WHO and other countries were advising the general public to wear masks. So I got a hold of, I was researching masks. I So, so I was researching um, what would be the most efficient medically type of mask so i was sewing with cotton material with two layers internal thermal non-bonded polypropylene filter (laughs) material that was medical grade in and made some for friends as well especially those that i felt had more compromised immune systems and i was wearing them out in public every time i went out at early stages before they advised that the public wear masks. And that, that I think, was really detrimental to the public to not receive that advice like other countries in Europe mm-hmm. were receiving right. wear masks. And, and Asia, too. Um, and yeah. it, it's... Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, the, uh, there was one point, I think, that um, uh, Dr. Fauci... Right, and he admitted this later and apologized for it. I think this is quite unforgivable. Um, that he basically uh, was kind of patronizing with the American public, and said, "Well, you don't need to get masks. Don't worry about it." Right, because he yeah. was he was afraid people will rush to get all these N95 masks, the 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 ones that the you know medical profession should be having, and he didn't want to have a shortage of that. But he should have just said that out loud. He was patronizing the American public and said, kind of downplayed mask. And that, I think, you know, with our leading public health official um, not being straight with the, with the public is, I, 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 you know, a lot of people, some people still cite that as a reason they don't believe in masks. I mean, it's, well, it's a mess. Yeah, that's certainly the that's case, like- Mark. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, that, in a sense, that's very similar to retractions that newspapers or publications make. Uh, often those retractions are put in a small area somewhere else that people don't necessarily read, but they remember the first things that were printed, even if they're incorrect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, well, poor Dr. Fauci, I think, has been on a tightrope from day one, and the um, vicissitudes of the guy he answers to, uh, I think, made him choose, well, should I just be honest enough so that I can keep doing some good in this administration, or, or should I tell it like it is and take the consequences and presume that I'm not going to get fired? Yeah, and that the president will start paying attention to the professionals. Yeah, there was there was a high it's, level it's of been a mixed bag. Yeah, there's been a high level of politicization of this pandemic from the very beginning. And if yeah. you if you recall, also that it was uh, uh, Bob Woodward had interviewed Trump, right? And um, in and I, right. I I remember listening, to, you know, to the recordings of his interview. And Trump Trump knew in February, right, that this was highly contagious, that it was airborne contagious that masks were absolutely necessary. All this stuff was known. And Trump also, um, kind of like Fauci, you know, decided, well, I don't want to panic the public. Well, we've got this handled. I mean, I remember him saying that, you know, don't worry, this, this, you know, this, this will pass. And, um, and that sort of thinking, I mean, it's, it's very arrogant kind of imperial thinking on both of them. Okay. Yeah, imperial in the truest sense. Yeah. Excellent word. Yeah. So anyway, there's uh, and, and that and, you know, these things, if you don't nip them in the bud at the beginning, as we've been finding, it's been a, it's been a you know, it's it's been a crap show in this country since. I mean, we have not we don't don't have this under control and we have and, and we have been saying since February also and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is beaten, which. By the way, uh, probably the most reliable estimates may not be, we may not get this under control until this fall. Um, so, you know, this is not going to turn around anytime soon. Um, it, yeah. is, it is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity, as we have said, requires sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much further from controlling the virus. Achieving herd immunity through vaccination and fully reopening the economy. Montana has had as of Thursday 81,555 confirmed cases with 961 people dying. And so, Jim, you may ask about vaccines. How are we doing with that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I uh, and I'll offer that th this has been a political um, catastrophe, and also it, it, beyond the political aspects of it, there have been economic aspects. Yes. Well, so I, and we'll get and, to we'll get to that soon. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. 
go hand in hand. Well, I was. So, yeah. May I ask that? <laughs> yes. Well. What about vaccines? I hope you're prepared to remark on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, prepared. And this is like really only some of the little bit of the current news that we're covering in this show. But um, besides the fact that the two emergency approved vaccines have not gone through all of the normal testing other vaccines do. Mm-hmm. And that, in effect, the phase three testing is being conducted on frontline health workers across the country right now. There have been questions about the effectiveness of the vaccines and their safety, as we have covered with shows in previous or with sources in previous shows. And then the rollout of these vaccines have been anything but impressive. President Trump has hastily assembled a pandemic team uh, at the beginning of the pandemic after his and and the Obama administration had let funding lapse for pandemic response. And the Obama administration has some responsibility in this too, by the way. Um, And that resulted in the formation of the so-called Operation Warp Speed Task Force to undertake the gargantuan task of vaccine distribution. The results have been disappointing to say the least, but not wholly unexpected. Mounting delays, technical glitches, and scheduling snafus have all plagued the distribution of the vaccines in the U.S. today. According to an article by the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, a very prestigious uh, health uh, news source, on December 24th, um, she said, the Trump administration had expressed confidence that the rollout would be smooth because it was being overseen by a four-star general, Gustav Perna an expert in logistics, but it turns out that getting fuel, tanks, and tents into war-torn mountainous Afghanistan is in many ways simpler than passing out a vaccine in our privatized, profit-focused, and highly fragmented medical system. General Perna apologized this week, saying he wanted to take personal responsibility. It's really mostly not his fault. Uh, and this is the editor speaking. Throughout the COVID pandemic, the U.S. healthcare system has shown that it is not built for a coordinated pandemic response, among many other things. States took wildly different COVID prevention measures. Individual hospitals varied in their ability to face this kind of national disaster. And there were huge regional disparities in test availability, with a slow ramp up in in availability due at least in some part because no payment or billing mechanism was established. Um, For example, some doses are being shipped by FedEx or UPS, but Pfizer, which did not fully participate in Operation Warp Speed, is shipping much of the vaccine itself. In nursing homes, some vaccines will be delivered and administered by employees of CVS and Walgreens, the drugstore companies, though issues of staffing consent remain there. The Moderna vaccine rolling out this week will be packaged by the pharmaceutical service provider Catalent in Bloomington, Indiana, and then sent to McKesson, a large pharmaceutical logistics and distribution outfit. It has offices in places like Memphis, Tennessee, and Louisville, which are near air hubs for FedEx and UPS, which will ship them out, end quote. I mean, this, this is like convoluted, like crazy, right? Yeah, why is this? Well, glad you asked, Jim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we had learned our lessons. 
Oh, but we we have not. Um, and so, uh, and we have, uh, actually, we've quoted this guy before. Lynn Paramore, a senior research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, said in a December 30th article reprinted in the blog Naked Capitalism, uh, economist and business historian William Lazonic, and we've featured Lazonic's uh, work uh, earlier this year. Um, he has spent a career studying how corporations function and analyzing their interaction with state and society. His critique of the shareholder value regime that swept American business culture in the 1980s, thanks to neoliberalism, the idea that corporations should be run primarily to enrich stock traders, illuminated widespread misunderstanding of the role large firms play in the economy. His work reveals how dysfunctional business models drive instability and inequality. Lazonic, critical of the rise of a financialized pharmaceutical industry business model that puts profit ahead of human life, has warned that companies fixated on manipulating stock prices in order to funnel money to shareholders are no longer focusing on making the drugs people need at prices they can afford. As he sees it, these firms have morphed from socially useful and innovative enterprises into predatory scofflaw monopolies that restrict the output of medicines and push prices out of reach, end quote. Yeah, in other words, the belief in neoliberalism and the business models it has spawned has made a big mess of something yeah. that really matters. Right, like Boeing, right? Um, yeah, Yes, exactly right, Jim. Yeah, I'm glad to see Lynn Paramore getting involved and using her analytical expertise. She's done a lot of work on looking for foundational documents and for corporations that say we must only do those things that serve our shareholders' interests and make as much money as possible. And she said yeah. over and over again in, in, in many venues, Yes, it's just not there. There's nothing compelling corporations to, um, to, act, to look for profit at any and all costs. Right, right. And that's the, the dominance of the market ideology, right? That the market can solve all our problems. Yeah. And increasing shareholder value, as it's called, or... You know, really played a huge, huge part in the in the CARES Act, right? Which was passed in March. Um, a, the big, you know, people think, it, and it was a huge amount of money. It was over two trillion dollars that went to unemployment and people's, you know, into the stimulus checks that we all got or most of us got, and you know, and 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 in bailing out small business. But the but two or three times that amount of money was spent on basically uh, interfering in the stock market and stabilizing prices on the stock market and stabilizing prices in other financial markets. So there, so the government's... Yeah, the government, sure there's enough air in the balloon. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's very hypocritical of uh, people who believe, who say they believe in neoliberalism, that the market can solve everything. And the, and the government can't do anything right. Well, here the government stepped in and saved these markets from total collapse, of course, yeah. to the benefit of the very wealthy. Yet again, just like um, 
you know, just like the SNL crisis with number 41, and just like the disaster with number 43, and, you know, it happens over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, socialism for the rich, doggy dog for the poor. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and speaking of making a mess out of things, uh, we need to review, review the economic fallout from the pandemic. Here you go, Jim. Um, or more accurately, in my opinion, we need to review Congress's extremely poor handling of the economy during the pandemic and its consequent fallout. We reported here for weeks in May, June, and July about the best and proven way that Congress could have handled the economy during the pandemic, but one the congressional leadership ignored throughout. This is a bipartisan failure, by the way. Um, and that is, of course, Democratic Representative Pramila Jayapal's bipartisan bill, the Paycheck Recovery Act, that would have taken a non-neoliberal approach by having the federal government guarantee all payrolls and business overhead for the duration of the pandemic, which would have meant that people would not have gone unemployed, that everyone would be on furlough or, you know, who weren't essential workers would be on furlough and their wages would be guaranteed and businesses overhead would be guaranteed for the duration of the pandemic. That's and, and this has been, as we covered before, this, this actually is a proven uh, uh, idea that's used uh, uh, in, in many, many places around the world. Um, and uh, Yeah, or as she says, mass unemployment is a policy choice. That's right, that's right. And so and I've seen numbers that are very compelling that, sh that simplify this and say, uh, you know, leading countries of the world, what percentage of people's paychecks is being insured right. in the absence of work? You know, and it's 100% for like 15 places. And then hard-nosed UK is like 90%, and Germany's 85%. Right. And the United States is zero. Zippo, right. Exactly. And so, yeah. and, we'll, and we'll get to the CARES Act, but I mean, instead the congressional leadership went to try to bolster the unemployment system, which was a whole nother mess in and of itself. But however, there was, uh, there was Republican, some Republican support for Jayapal's bill and Senator Josh Hawley, Republican yes. from Missouri, had sponsored a, a less generous but very similar bill in the Senate, and which went nowhere as well, right, which is no big surprise. Um, and it, you mentioned, uh, yeah, Jayapal described in her press release, the Paycheck Recovery Act will end mass unemployment, put workers back on their paychecks, and healthcare and keep businesses from closing permanently while ensuring workers aren't forced to return to work before it is safe to do so. And which is exactly what happened and is still happening today. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I can't, I, I, words fail yeah. me at how, uh, how bad that decision that uh, the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership went you know, down that path. It, it, it was just absolutely terrible. And J, it, like you mentioned, Jayapal did say mass unemployment is a policy choice. 
it always is a policy choice, by the way. So um, it used, it, well, and it's often been the case that the Federal Reserve, for instance, uh, will, uh, in order to fight inflation, increases unemployment, and which is, which is a really heinous thing to do instead of taxing the rich, <laughs> which would also do it. But, um, but that's long been the thing that they've juggled, you know, keeping unemployment at a certain level and inflation at a certain level. And, but yet uh, unemployment is a policy choice, uh, almo yeah. almost always. It, it almost always is a policy choice. Um, yeah, literally. And the, uh, the, the only way the uh, insanity in the, with the majority party in the Senate makes any sense is if you, if you filter through the lens of what would be the decision that would make it the hardest for state governments hmm. and duly elected, you know, statewide officials that might not be the same party as the president, right? Make their jobs more difficult. If you play around with unemployment compensation, then uh, you know you're putting at a disadvantage the states that have adequate programs that are being drawn down faster. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, and when the pandemic hit, both the Democratic and Republican leadership in Congress did not follow Jayapal's lead, but went with a much more ineffective path, which resulted in the CARES the CARES Act. Right? Um, instead of preventing people from becoming unemployed, the CARES Act doubled down on unemployment insurance with no plan to replace lost employer-based health insurance for those newly unemployed people. In, Absolutely. During during a pandemic, no less. I mean, this is mm -hmm. this is ridiculous. Instead of guaranteeing business overhead, the CARES Act offered complicated, forgivable loans to businesses through the PPP program. Instead of providing money for housing, the CARES Act simply provided for a moratorium on payments, not on what is owed. Instead of fully funding the real cost to people and to small businesses. The CARES Act provide, provided more money to prop up stock prices and to underwrite financial markets to the tune of over $4 trillion, twice as much as was provided the 99%. And instead of keeping the program in place until the pandemic was over, Congress, in its utterly wishful thinking, let the inadequate CARES Act, but at least it was something, uh, expire without renewal on July 31st. This is precisely why we are in an end-of-the-year mess over renewing some funding for individuals, businesses, and state and local governments at the end of the year, while the pandemic continues to rage worse than ever in the country. A complete failure by both parties' leadership in Congress as well as the inept leadership of President Trump. And that failure has forced state and local governments into a very tough position, as you mentioned, Jim. Either, clo either close down the economy to control the COVID uh, uh, virus, but severely reduce people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. As you are fond of saying, Jim, that's a Sophie's choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. I wish I could, um, you know, affect Meryl Streep's Polish accent. Agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 
this is the only plan that makes any sense if you analyze the lunacy here is um, using a catastrophe to put even more stress on the state governments that are working and make sure that they're as embarrassed and humbled as the places that are failing because of a you know failed economic vision. Yeah. Yeah, and there's make the, sure everybody hurts. The the Republicans somehow think that, or the majority of Republicans in Congress somehow think that bailing out state and local governments is going to bail out some governments that have been uh, irresponsible in their budget, right? So, I mean, as we've covered before about how finance and the money system works, um, the federal government can create money. The, the federal government cannot go <clears throat> cannot go broke. They just can print more money. Um, but state and local governments can't do that. And so when you have high unemployment, um, and Montana didn't suffer so badly this way, but a lot of states uh, rely upon sales tax and upon income tax. And if pe- people are unemployed and not going out and spending things, that's hurting state and local governments' uh, right. base of funding. So, you know, and yeah, maybe there's some uh, some governments that are uh, overspending and not having a balanced budget on the state and local level, which is not sustainable. Uh, but um, that th- this is th- this is a really strange time to kind of pull out that moral hazard card uh, when we're in the midst of a, a Great Depression and a pandemic that is still <coughs> raging out of control and may still rage out of control for another nine months. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, my read is that there there's a flaw in the, the you know the social psychology of conservatives who who, have, who discount the prosperity factor. If you give people the tools to do better and be more productive, it always has to be well. If you take if you give money to the people that are the owners of capital, um, somehow, because they do better, everybody else will. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Right. It makes about as much sense as the Aztecs, you know, marching slaves and, and captives up to the top of a pyramid and cutting their heart out with an obsidian knife because only with their blood will the sun come up the following day. <laughs> Yeah, that that might that might even have better rationale. Than, than yeah, it probably does. <laughs> Catherine, was, you, go ahead, Catherine. Study that just came out recently on the fact that trickle down economics is not a reality. It's a it's a, a falsehood, a fabrication. Absolutely. Um, during the bailout, I was increasingly incensed. Uh, seeing who was receiving the bailouts, that it was the the wealthier corporations. Hell, churches that don't even pay taxes were getting bailouts, yet we were just given $600 that was supposed to last how long? Yeah. Um, it, it's been a joke yeah. with me <laughs> on social media that $600 stimulus is, is like the, you can... For just twenty cents a day, you can sponsor an American. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not bad that other countries are looking at our massive dysfunction. 
but those in power with the the corporations, the oligarchy, that um, the average people are not feeling this. We're we're not getting any of this so-called trickle down. We haven't for decades and decades. It's a lie. Yep. It's a neoliberal lie. Yep, well put. And the, and the toll of the economic damage wrought by Congress is summed up in a December 27th article in The Hill. Quote, nearly half of Americans say they have lost income since March, when the Census Bureau began tracking the economic fallout of the pandemic. The impact has fallen disproportionately on minorities, blacks and Hispanics, are more likely to say they lost income than are whites and on those who make less than $50,000 a year and those who do not have a college degree. You know, you're talking about a huge portion of the 99% right now. Um, Yeah, a huge proportion of people that wear red hats with white lettering. Well, them included, right? Uh, Included with people who don't wear those hats. Um, So because the economic harm, you know, is is being felt most acute uh, at the bottom of the economic ladder. Um, there, uh, there are f- fewer jobs in America today than there were in November 2015. There are fewer privates. This is the, uh, the Hill article continuing. There are fewer private sector jobs in the country that there were when President Trump took office. And while the unemployment rate has fallen from its highs in the immediate aftermath of the harshest lockdowns, it appears so low because a startlingly high number of Americans have given up looking for jobs. The labor force participation rate, the percentage of civilians over the age of 16 who are in the workforce, was lower in September than at any point since the summer of 1976, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The leisure and hospitality sectors have been hardest hit, as tourism ground to a halt to stop the virus. Almost half of tourism-related jobs in Hawaii have vanished. 49 states and the District of Columbia saw their leisure and hospitality sectors decline over the last year, according to an analysis by the demographer Cheryl Russell. Almost one in six restaurants in the United States are closed, either permanently or for the long term. That's an es- a loss of an estimated 110,000 businesses. And it's not just new places that haven't established themselves yet. The average restaurant that has closed was open for 16 years, according to the National Restaurant Association. Those business losses are translating into very real pain for low-income families who are struggling to get by even before the pandemic. Almost 8 million Americans have fallen into poverty since March, reversing a years-long trend of falling poverty rates. And I might add, the, the, it's almost a joke how low the poverty rate uh, or the, the le- poverty level is in the United States. You have to be making like $14,000 a year to be considered poor in this country. Um, and so 8 million people have dropped, you know, even below that. That's it's 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 almost uh, mind-blowing. Um, poverty has risen every month since June, according to a report from scholars at the University of Chicago, University of Notre Dame, and the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. Almost a quarter of those with a high school education or less 
now find themselves living below the poverty line. And this is a lot of Trump supporters, okay? Between February and April, the last month for which statistics are available, more than 3 million households and 6 million individuals signed up for the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. More than 27 million people told Census Bureau interviewers earlier this month they sometimes or often did not have enough to eat over the last week. Nearly a quarter of households that rent have not paid any rent this month, the lowest rate all year, according to the National Multifamily Housing Council. Eviction moratoriums have kept millions in their homes, but those eviction bans will expire at some point in the new year, risking a wave of homelessness at a time when homelessness is already on the rise, end quote, and on and on. Yeah, and I, I see parallels between how, how desperate circumstances are for so many people in this country and what it was like in Russia in the early 90s when the bottom fell out. And it was no, and it was in free fall, and it was one out of three kids were were malnourished, and there was little or no order, no hope, no future. People were desperate, and yeah. we can see where that led to. Yeah, the strong man, the man on the white horse, right? It's going to take it all away and make it good. The authoritarian. I hope that we don't yeah. follow on the same path. Yeah. There was a global advisory firm in July that put out a report that estimated eviction levels across the United States by various states. Montana was projected at 36% eviction. And and that's probably worse than the Great Depression, I'm, I'm thinking. Actually, I'm, I'm looking at a lot. Being a history buff, I, I love to read and also look at patterns throughout history. What causes what cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing right now between the rise of social justice situations um, with the economics that are going on, the evictions that are already happening, this this smacks a hell of a lot smacks of the depression era. Mm-hmm. I mean, even yeah. statistically with union memberships, which were in the upper 30 percentiles nationally, the average is 10.3% right now, which is the same as Montana's statistics. So between everything that's going on, some of which you'll cover uh, a little bit further in the broadcast, I, I look at this, and this is like depression happening all over again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And we don't have the, the infrastructure that was previously built up under the New Deal. After FDR, they systematically broke down all of those progressive gains, and we are left with less of an infrastructure, less of a democracy to even fight for it. Yeah. Well, on that uh, cheery note, um, we're going to uh, tra- tra- uh, we're going to uh, uh, move into another topic, but we need to give a station ID here. And um, you are listening to 
Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on KFGM uh, 105.5 FM, and that is in the Missoula Valley and in environs. Um, you may be listening to this uh, around the world on... Uh, uh, and we hope you are. And we hope you are <laughs> on streaming uh, through 1055kfgm.org. Or you may be listening to this at your own leisure some other time um, off of anchor.fm uh, backslash mark-anderlich, which is where you can find uh, this show. Uh, you will be able to find this show fairly soon uh, as a recording. America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change, and it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming. The next uh, issue we're going to uh, cover from, and we're reviewing the year 2020, uh, a, a, a year so great they named it twice, um, <laughs> and uh, is the uh, uh, police murder of George Floyd and the rebellion that followed. Um, and uh, on March 25th, Memorial Day, uh, if you remember, Minneapolis police officers murdered black resident George Floyd on a Minneapolis street. It proved to be a spark that ignited protests and rebellions across the country and world, including all the larger cities and towns in Montana, um, where we have a very, very small black population, by the way. Um, about 95% of these protests were peaceful, even if they were angry. Of course, the media overcovered the small number that were violent or had property destruction. It was reported by the New York Times on July 3rd that from 15 to 26 million Americans participated in protests during this time with weeks of protests to come. That's, that's an amazing figure, right? That's anywhere from 6 to 10% of the U.S. population were out in the yeah. streets. Um, yeah, the Times at that time reported uh, that it was the largest mass demonstration in history. There were like 800 street protests in the United States. Yeah, it's and, 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 and yeah, this was very significant, right? Um, the uh, mappingpoliceviolence.org has recorded 1,066 people nationwide killed at the hands of police this year up to December 15th, an average of around three killings per day. As reported by Mint Press on December 30th, Quote, black people are three times more likely than white people to be slain by police and more likely to be unarmed when it does happen. Eight of the 100 largest city police departments kill black men at a higher clip than the U.S. murder rate. They are 
Reno, those eight are Reno, Nevada, Oklahoma City, Santa Ana, California, Anaheim, California, St. Louis, Missouri, Scottsdale, Arizona, Hialeah, which is uh, Miami, Florida, and Madison, Wisconsin, that bastion of liberalism. Yes. Um, I'm going to turn my page here. So um, uh, the, the article continues, death by cop is a leading cause of death for black males in the U.S., killing around one in 1,000. U.S. police violence is off the charts in comparison to other developed countries, with homicides occurring at a per capita rate almost 70 times, at seven zero times that of the United Kingdom, or nearly 170 times more than Japan. This puts it closer to many Latin American nations, notorious for their corrupt and militarized police departments, heavy-handed response to drug smuggling and organized crime, end quote. Um, all of these protests are, of course, about more than the awful death rate at the hands of police. Long, simmering grievances carried by people of color, but also by working-class whites, had boiled over, resulting in weeks of demonstrations and the protests spurred many attempts to so-called defund the police, which really was about reallocation of resources away from the militarized police and into housing, health, and other essential needs unmet in communities across the country. Kind of summing up, Dr. Cornell West, an African-American and professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University, said on Anderson Cooper's show on CNN on May 29th, quote, I think we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. What I mean by that is that the history of black people for over 200 and some years in America has been looking at America's failure. Its capitalist economy could not generate and deliver in such a way people can live lives of decency. The nation state, its criminal justice system, its legal system could not generate protection of rights and liberties. And now our culture so market-driven everybody for sale, everything for sale, you can't deliver the kind of really real nourishment for soul, for meaning, for purpose. So when you get this perfect storm of all these multiple failures at these different levels of the American empire, and Martin King already told us about that, the system cannot reform itself, end quote. Well, I would agree that the system can't reform itself. I, I think that the duopoly, the corporations that direct the duopoly... And, du and duopoly, you mean... Uh, Catherine, just explain what you mean by duopo duopoly. Duopoly, the, both the Republican and Democratic Party, the, the dual party um, okay. that they represent... The corporations more than they represent the people they're supposed to represent. Right. Um, for right. example, I, I'm I'm in agreement. <laughs> the AFL CIO in 2017 in October at their conference, they had two resolutions that had statements in there that I wholly agree with and I feel are necessary for reform. But they stated, whereas in the results of national elections, whether the candidates elected are from the Republican or Democratic Party, the interests of Wall Street have been protected and advanced, while the interests of labor and working people have generally been set back. They then state that the viability studies 
of the viability of independent and third-party politics are what need to be explored and a reasonable means of advancing the interest of labor in electoral politics. Then in the resolution number two on an independent political voice, they stated that for decades, the political system has failed working people acting on behalf of corporations and the rich and powerful. The political system has been taking away one after another the pillars that support working people's rights to good jobs and secure benefits. And they closed on that with, we must give working people greater political power by speaking with an unquestionably independent political voice backed by a unified labor movement. And I wholly agree with that. Because so long as we have corporations dictating and the media flooding every avenue, whether it's social media, radio, television, the interest of the corporations rather than the general people, we're never going to make any gains towards equality. I I spend a lot of time doing research, and I've looked at sites like the sentencing project and procon.org i the inequality and the racism that go hand in hand in this i'm independent candidate for president this year mark charles had an awesome video series where he was trying to explain the real history of the united states and what's been taking place and even pointed out that incarceration is modern slavery. It robs the citizens of their right to vote. And in some states, even after their release, that the 13th Amendment, it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We've got modern slavery. It's rampant. We have a privatized prison industrial complex that's as bad as military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolute justification for all of the protests that emanated. Those protests that started with the civil rights movement and even before that were squashed at that time rearing their heads once again because it was never corrected before we never achieved equality egalitarianism democracy so this is just the next iteration of the same battle that we were fighting back in the 20s and the 30s all the way through to the 60s that finally got squashed and neoliberalism became so dominant after that point and here we are again going around that mountain one more time yeah yeah it's a continuum for sure and uh, i had an instructor i was very fond of back at the university of texas said all of this pep talk we hear about how america is free and american people are pampered and are the most free and the most privileged and the happiest in the world is uh, a reflection on a outlier. It's been a place where people have come because wherever they came from was even worse and they 
thought they couldn't do any worse, and they were exploited as laborers. They were exploited as production workers. And the only time that um, the working man became ennobled and respected and valued was when the U.S. ended up having to fight two world wars in succession. And it was an existential threat to the American economic system and financial system if the wrong team won. So workers had to be pacified and pampered and put in the factory to make munitions and armaments and the stuff to win freedom back with. And then, you know, as we were talking about Harry Truman versus Henry Wallace, um, as soon as the war was won, uh, all of a sudden it's okay. Now we have to take back all those, you know, trinkets and baubles we gave the working people and put them back in their place. Now we had a cold war, so there were some features of the economy that were preserved because we had to have bigger missiles and faster jets. But then, with the thaw, uh, you know, even the, the rug got pulled out on that one in large part. So, I think the whole as but the brilliant and wonderful in, in a man you mentioned had said, "America's never been cured. It's a failed state. We have to start over again." Yeah, in some sense. They don't mean that to be a revolutionary. There are wonderful people that are willing to, to make things better. For yeah. example, you know, Black Lives Matter. That, you know, the, the Charlottesville's, you know, silliness um, happened, uh, you know, in, the, in February of 2017. Nothing changed. And then there was a titration point reached with George Floyd. And and the world erupted, and you know, and you know, eight hundred demonstrations, millions and millions of Americans in the street. You know, I'm I'm sitting in a in a hotel room on the eighth floor, and outside our window is a colonnade and pedestal that I have to look up at. It's so tall, and I asked the clerk at the at the desk. Why do you have that column? And he said, oh, that's that's the General Lee statue, but there's no General Lee there any longer. <laughs> so this is the center of the town, traffic circle, where there were the, three, the busiest streets in New Orleans come together. Well, and I... I, I more. Yeah. And, and I, I think it very much exemplifies, I don't know if y'all ever saw... Uh, a video that was produced by Childish Gambino, This Is America. And that was incredible. One part really struck me, not just the evidencing of the, the brutality that goes on against the black community, but one part really struck me, and that was when they were showing the kids up on the, the balcony, the overhang, with the cell phones. This yes. racism, this violence against the black community, other minorities, has been there. But cell phones give us the ability to document it, stream it, show it in real time. Right. If it had not been 
for those pedestrians that were videotaping, recording what was going on with George Floyd, we wouldn't have known about it. That's right. Right. Or and there, there wasn't network news at Selma, uh, you know, Edmund Pettus Bridge. People never could have imagined the the ugliness of life in the South for half the population. Well, and there's been efforts to <clears throat> try to um, reform the police or defund the police. And um, really, I, I, I'm trying to read, you know, what, what's been happening. And I went to Minneapolis police, and pretty much the reports on the ground there are saying that uh, because there was another uh, homicide by Minneapolis police of a black person in uh, allegedly shot at the police, and they shot back. Um, and, and there's some kind of video, but it's really tough to tell uh, what, what exactly happened. And um, but in any event, uh, lots of people are commenting and saying, well, the the efforts uh, to uh, change the situation directly, you know, with the police has really uh, stalled out in Minneapolis and I suspect in a lot of other places. Um, and this is a topic that we can we can certainly come back to the, um, the our, our, our next portion really deals with kind of more of the Montana response uh, to this. And uh, we won't spend too much time on this, but um, the um, we reported in August about efforts by the 1700 for Liberation group and others to get the Missoula City Council to reject hiring another police officer to specifically work downtown Missoula, part of whose salary would be paid for by downtown businesses. So <laughs> downtown businesses are hiring their own security uh, uh, as, a, as a public servant, right? Um, which which all over again. What's to say that again? It's like the Pinkertons all over again. Yes, exactly right. Um, and if anyone re listening remembers their union history, it was the Pinkertons that uh, violently broke up uh, uh, union strikes. Um, anyway, um, the effort to so-called defund the police in Missoula was really an effort to reallocate that money for the new officer and Mayor John Engen's request to increase the Missoula police budget by several hundreds of thousands of dollars and redirect that to affordable housing and mental health crisis intervention. After a huge turnout of people during the otherwise stayed city budgeting process, which they barely see anybody at, uh, the city uh, council went ahead and hired the new police officer. Uh, but it did add more money into projects to create more affordable housing and into the mental health crisis intervention team. And as we noted, the crisis intervention team, like the first week that it was in business, uh, basically uh, saved like three or four people uh, from the, the police having to even deal with them. Um, so, uh, you know, it, the problem isn't solved, but at least, you know, it was a small steps forward. And at the same time, we covered on the show the effort to change another part of the prison police industrial complex, how Montana's prisoners are treated, uh, specifically on how Governor Steve Bullock had inadequately acted to protect prisoners from the pandemic, despite protests by the families of Native American prisoners at the Capitol. And the same group protested the way that the Department of Corrections had discounted tribal identity 
in conducting the U.S. Census inside the prison system. Neither effort was successful. I think the issue is going to get worse as we see increasing economic problems from COVID, as well as increased evictions and pay inequality. There are a tremendous amount of people that are stressing out there, and we don't have adequate infrastructure to deal with mental health issues. And I'm not talking about mental health disorders. I'm talking about people just being able to cope with all the stress that's on their plate these days being bombarded. I, I saw someone on social media that had done a New Year's um, Eve snack, so to speak, uh, they made a dumpster, like a gingerbread cookie house, but instead of a house, they made a dumpster fire with 2020 put on the front of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the dumpster fire memes and how bad 2020 has been with with all the debacles and disasters and everything else is just going to increase. Yes. And we already have the United States is the country with the largest incarceration rate per percentage of the population than any other country. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have massive, massive <laughs> incarceration rates that are being affected. COVID is greatly affecting. I was glad when they were releasing people with nonviolent offenses that, um, could relieve some of that overburdening in there, but the privatizing of the prison industrial complex, and that includes the same companies like CoreCivic, that also does the immigration on the border, and they control some in Montana of the prisons that are here as well. I mean, when people start investing in that as a stock market as a means of making money, like yeah. Dan Forte did, I, I find that absolutely appalling. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and I, I would just add, though, that um, the, in Montana, the, there, there was a judge that had ordered um, and left it up to the Bullock administration to figure out how many um, nonviolent or like short-term uh, offenders in the prison system that they could release they ended up releasing very few people. And, um, and then, what's more, they refused to take uh, prisoners that, that was from the counties, in the county jails, uh, that, was, uh, that they were supposed to take. They just refused to take them. And um, it created, you know, a huge mess. I mean, a huge expense to the county jails to the, to the point where the uh, Montana County Sheriff's Association wrote a, a very long and a very detailed letter, which we wrote, read out loud on our show, about how, um, you know, that the state is, is, is basically uh, giving up on its duty to protect prisoners and to take these other prisoners. Um, it, 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 it's, it's just a terrible, terrible... Uh, situation. It's it's almost like a, a in, uh, you know, in some prisons around the country, the incidence of uh, COVID is is on the steep increase, and it's people uh, should not have a death sentence uh, when they are sent to prison, and this is exactly what we're 
you know, yeah. beginning to see here. And and I would I would just add one quick thing too. Um, uh, speaking about Montana, that according to MappingPoliceViolence.org, Montana police killed 49 people between 2013 and 2020. Six of them were Native American. One was Hispanic. 35 were white. None were black, and seven had an undetermined race. Only one of these people was a woman. And racially, police killings roughly followed population uh, uh, rates, with Native American killings just above the Native population percentage as a whole. So, um, and and the reason I bring that up is that uh, oftentimes, I mean, the 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 racism endemic in our society gets shown gets kind of shown uh, you know in a lot of economic statistics right and um, here in Montana there isn't I mean there's racism in Montana there's no doubt about it but it's not showing up in the police killings in, in to any great extent nationally that's that's not the the case nationally you know uh, still white people are killed by uh, police in, in far larger numbers, but not as a high of, of a rate as right. black people and other races. I think that's partly due to our population numbers. Montana doesn't have, I mean, we have more horses here than we have people. Right. I, I'm from Texas. I'm from large cities in Texas, San Antonio and Austin from the South. I, I know what the racism look like up front yes. there. And yeah, you and I both. This is um, moving to Montana almost 14 years ago. It was like stepping back in time here, like to the 1950s <laughs> in some areas. It is it's radically different than some of the other major states across the United States. We're not going to see some of um the massive inequality and social protest as a result of police killings. Uh, while people did protest here, yes. and I did protest here in Helena, participated yep. in the Black Lives Matter protest, um, we don't have the larger black population here that I'm used to and the diversity of ethnicities in other states and other cities here in Montana. Yeah, the, the native population in Montana is is undercounted, um, and it's it's been about nine percent of the state population. Okay, so uh, th- that's you know if racism is expressed, it's almost always with uh, against Native Americans, right? But but, but in the but in the police killings, I mean, it, there was like uh, looks like there was about. Um, uh, about twelve percent of the killings by police versus nine percent of the population. So it's a it's higher, but it's not not so out of it's not three times out of whack, right? It's it's a little bit. So and it's just an interest. I don't you know. I that's just an interesting an interesting uh, statistic anyway. But the problem, the problem nationwide is clearly um, that people of color have an undue, uh, uh, you know, repression from the police. And, uh, and by the way, um, 
during all the protests, uh, the police um, had targeted journalists uh, in many cities. Uh, the police uh, broke up nonviolent, peaceful demonstrations. I mean, President Trump was the most famous when he ordered uh, the military to go in and with tear gas and billy clubs, clear up a nonviolent protest so he could have a photo op in front of a church right outside of the, uh, of the White House. Uh, this 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 really shows, you know, in many areas where the what the police is really for. I think. Yeah, and a complicating factor is in number one. <laughs> I mean, in on tribal lands, uh, police are unwelcome and don't isn't there in mm-hmm. a a uh, you know a tribal police force? Uh, yes. You know, the police force absolutely yep so that makes so that makes things different hopefully better and to get back to cornell west yes we have a new contributor toward the willingness and eagerness of uh, people to get thrown into jails they're for profit yeah investors buy into jails because they get a very high rate of return and they can take they can take their casino ships on Wall Street and and make some money. So throw people into jail, stop them at the border, throw them into a, some into some uh, internment, you know, camp. for profit right. internment camp. Yeah, yeah. You know, remember. <laughs> speaking of which, you know, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, and Arizona's right there on the border. The top 10 contributors to her political campaigns were for-profit prisons. (laughs) Not the top one, not the top two. It's like she was their, you know, political figure. Yeah. Their go-to gal. Right. All 10 of them. I couldn't believe that. CoreCivic contributed to Gianforte's campaign as well. Yep. Naturally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Hey, it's a growth industry, throwing people in jail. Right. You make the, you, you you know you soften the laws so or you know make them more rigid and inflexible, and um, you can get people for anything. You know, if you don't shoot somebody right away for having a broken taillight, you can probably throw them in jail for a while. It's dehumanizing the way they're It treated. certainly is. Yep. Kafka yep. would be wondering, why couldn't I be alive in the current era? Why did I have to live back in the boring times 50 <laughs> or 100 years ago? When the election was going on and we had that plethora of candidates running in the Democratic primary, one of the candidates that concerned me the most was Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. He had gone to Israel on a, a trip besides uh, he was over dealing with the Middle East uh, inserted without all the proper training but he had gone to Israel and he came back and he was just lauding Israel uh, and Bach wrote an article on it in oh. what that April 3rd 2019. Democrats are increasingly critical of Israel, not Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, lamentably Joe Biden, too. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that concerned me most 
was a, a quote he had in there that said um, Buttigieg had nothing but high praise for Israel, suggesting its way of handling security threats would be a good model for the U.S. But he knew that Israel trains a number of police forces for pe- countries around the world, and the United States participates in that. We have police forces that will send their officers over to Israel and receive training over there. Well, if anybody has seen how the Palestinian people are treated over there by Israel, it's absolutely appalling. It's criminal. No, it's like the Warsaw Ghetto all over again. Yes, it is. And for Buttigieg to have high praise for that and suggesting that that's a good model for the U.S., had me screaming at my computer screen. <laughs> well, I have a screaming irony for you. Pete Buttigieg's dad is a very thoughtful, clever man, and one of his best friends is Cornell West. Yeah. So where the hell did Pete come from? <laughs> I, I know well, I've read his father's background in the writings that he translated, and I was like, what the hell happened here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we need to move on to the next topic here, um, and I, I, I'm going to say that you know on, about genetics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I think um, well, we could bash Peach Buttigieg another time, um, but uh, I, I didn't really mean to bash him. No, no, but, I understand. I'm, I'm. But you know, there's a huge distance between what his dad believes and stands for, yeah. and what Pete's been saying. Maybe, right. Maybe it was politically motivated. Go figure, right? Um, yeah. Well, on this show, we like to highlight not just the bad news and the bad things that are happening, which is plenty, right? But also, you know, hopeful things, right? People, ordinary people out of the 99% um, struggling to, to make a difference, struggling to make change, struggling to make revolutionary change, right? And um, yes. And I think that the, the massive and widespread protests against police violence was overall a very positive thing. Um, But also, another positive thing that happened this past year was the huge spike in strikes conducted by workers across the country. Uh, The intrepid journalists at Payday Report has documented 1,178 wildcat strikes in the U.S. since March 1st. According to Payday Report on July 8th, quote, during George Floyd's funeral on June 9th, Black dock workers in Charleston, South Carolina, shut down the nation's fourth busiest port and gathered to show their solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. The actions were part of a nationwide effort to which the International Longshore Association, which is 65% black, shut down all the ports on the east and gulf shore coasts. Ken Riley, a black dock worker and president of ILA Local 1422, said, Quote, it was a moving event because we were able to show, as workers, our ability to stop global commerce, end quote. The shutdown on the do- and the article continues, the shutdown on the docks in South Carolina was one of the hundreds seen across the nation. This June, the U.S. saw more than 600 strikes or work stoppages by workers in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, including uh, scientists here at the University of Montana. Uh, bringing the total number of strikes or work stoppages since the outbreak of COVID in the U.S. 
to at least 900 since March 1st. According to the latest analysis prepared by Payday Report and its strike wave tracker, Payday estimates that the strike in work stoppages total is likely a severe underestimation, as many non-union black and brown workers are now calling out en masse to attend Black Lives Matter protests without it ever being reported in the press or on the social media. On July 20th, Black Lives Matter activists in their largest strike action to date intended to hold strikes and work stoppages in more than 25 cities as part of the strike for black lives. The movement is the largest wave of strikes and work stoppages that the U.S. has seen in decades, end quote. And Payday Report and others have reported on hundreds of strikes by workers around issues of health and safety at work during the pandemic. For example, according to Payday Report just on December 23rd, more than 30,000 railroaders, members of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division at Union Pacific in the West, are threatening to strike over unsafe COVID-19 protocols and a lack of full-time pay when quarantining because of the virus. And overworked, understaffed nurses at hospitals in Orange County, California, walked out in a job action with nurses around the state of California soon following suit. And on New Year's Eve, prisoners with the Free Alabama Movement, uh, which helped spark massive nationwide prison strikes in 2016 and 2018, are set to launch another strike. Prisoners performing labor in prison intend to go on strike for at least a month over the prison system's, quote, full-fledged humanitarian crisis, end quote, as the group claims state leaders aren't doing enough to preserve and protect incarcerated people's lives from COVID-19. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very, very comforting news to people that want to see the hoi polloi empowered to get the people that do the work to get recognized for the work they do and the risks they take. Well, and it's, I noticed yeah, go on ahead. Um, taking Amtrak, you know, 24 hours a day for the last couple of days, the people doing the work are very, very concerned about COVID and, and said, you are a guest on this train. If you don't wear a mask, you're going to get off. Okay. <laughs> Good. Then they, they're all, you know, always protected. Well, and, and here's kind of the upshot. I mean, we were talking about what is it going to take to change our current, you know, decrepit situation. And uh, one thing is, you know, this quote from the uh, International Longshore um, guy, right? Uh, he said, it felt good to shut down global tra- trade, you know, for even a short period of time. And so, the you know, these workers have the power to do that, right? They can shut down the economy if they got organized, if, you know, they're, we're nowhere near this, but this is hinting at, you know, what could happen in terms of general strike in the future, which is would be mortally uh, fear, you know, the the powers that be, the elite are mortally afraid of something like that. Yeah, you may have a million craft workers uh, involved in producing a product, but if the person that loads it in the container 
right <laughs> and drops it and the, and the hold isn't cooperating it's it Whoops. amplifies <laughs> it all weren't mark you would know better than any of us oh, weren't there um dock worker strikes in the west coast in the 30s that brought the country to a just standstill oh absolutely and there were okay. in, in in 1934 there were three uh hugely influential strikes that happen. And and this is before the National Labor Relations Act, remember, right? It, it, everything was right to work at back then, right? And so, um, and what, and, and how they organized is really the, the most interesting story of all, which we've covered on past shows and which we'll cover again. But, um, but, it, but the, the, the uh, Autolite strike in Toledo the Teamsters strike in Minneapolis and the longshore strike on the West Coast with the uh, International Longshore Worker and Warehouse Union, um, those three strikes uh, happened almost simultaneously, right? They were led and organized by socialists and communists, and they absolutely shut down production and uh, became... Um, uh, a, a real wake-up call to the leaders of the country at the time to um, that that you know labor needed to get some protection and, and hence the National Labor Relations Act and that was the beginning that was the beginning of unions really becoming strong again they were weak they were as weak in 1932 as they are today but it was those strikes that really galvanized the labor movement. And by the time of the 19, by the end of World War II, uh, you, that's when unions were at their uh, uh, you know, peak of around a, th a third of all workers in the country were, were union. Um, and that was the peak. And then it's declined since for reasons we've gone into before. But Yeah. Um, and I think about every night while I try to fall asleep. Yeah. Yep. So, well, um, our, our last topic is uh, about the election, right, and the aftermath and results. And so, um, you know, of course, we all know Joe Biden won the presidential race, that the Democrats barely maintained control over the U.S. House of Representatives. And in fact, uh, it's the smallest majority in U.S. history, I believe. Wow. Um, I didn't. Yeah. yeah, and so it's just a handful, just a handful of Democrats uh, over the number of Republicans um, that the election in a few days in Georgia will determine which party controls the U.S. Senate, and also the fact that Democrats were completely shut out of the statewide races, in, including governor in Montana. Um, there were a few eyebrows raising things that came out of this election, in my opinion. For one, record turnouts across the country did not necessarily mean Democrats received the benefit of that, as has long been assumed. Um, another interesting point was Donald Trump improved on his rather dismal support from people of color, which also defied conventional wisdom. Joe Biden did very well with educated white suburban dwellers, but he did poorly in rural areas, including Montana, and among people with little to no college education which we had mentioned before, are suffering disproportionately from Congress's uh, fumbling and ineptness in dealing with the economics during the pandemic. 
Um, in fact, the single most important factor who supported Democrats generally was along a person's level of education, not class. Had as you know, what Roosevelt wow. Roosevelt had created during the Great Depression and the New Deal. It was working people that the Democratic Party was for. Well, as uh, Catherine had said, even the AFL-CIO in its convention in St. Louis, which I attended, I was at that when those two resolutions were passed, um, even, and it should have been passed well before a few years ago, but even the (laughs) AFL-CIO recognized that the Democrats are no longer the party of the working class. Um, And... um, and so uh, the uh, and that was the well, and it was also the rationale uh, for nominating Biden over Bernie Sanders in the first place, right? Was uh, that that Sanders would would scare the you know uneducated voter? Well, I think Sanders scared more the 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 educated people more than yeah, exactly. Um, Another interesting point about the election results was despite record turnouts, the number of people not voting at all were still the largest group, meaning yes. that large number of people do not feel moved enough to vote in our elections uh, for either party's candidates. However, no federal candidate that supported Medicare for all lost, and the narrowest majority in modern history has given House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi a real threat from the handful of true progressives in the House. She needs them to be re-elected to the, as Speaker of the House, among other things. With the addition of Cory Bush from Missouri and Jamal Bowman of New York, both Democratic Socialists of America members, and other progressives, uh, progressives could make real gains in the U.S. House by using that leverage uh, against their own leadership in order to move it more to the left. Yeah, and this that article got noticed, Mark. I think you're referring to something in the Washington Post about a week ago. Yeah, because I get I go through um, while driving from Western Washington to Western Montana, uh, I I get shock therapy from the you know the AM talk radio that's the only signal that's strong enough to peek through the mountains. <laughs> yeah. And and the righties were saying, here here is proof. The Washington Post is saying the conservatives are right. Everybody sees the value of our plan. People of color, people of different ethnicities, they're becoming Republican because they know what's good for America. So don't don't let this creeps from Antifa or the guy or the people that have college degrees tell you otherwise. We're winning. Well, there's uh, I'm a DSA member, uh, a member of the Helena DSA. And in 2015, there were 5,000 registered DSA members. You want to know how many there are now this November? Mm -hmm. 85,000. Yep. What? Yeah. 85,000 registered DSA members now from 2015's 5,000. There was a, a study done in uh, 2018, Thomas Piketty, mm-hmm. who was studying um, history of voting behavior, and he chose 70 years, and 
focused on England, France, and the U.S., and found that poorly educated citizens do not vote at all unless there is a social Democrat on the ballot. And he specified that social Democrat is the equivalent of democratic socialist. And there's a a lot of people, I've seen it numerous times. I, I filled out political compasses questionnaire as to where I fall on the political spectrum with their quadrants. And I'm, I'm very left, but there are people that fill it out according to the questions and are shocked by being classified left when they viewed themselves and had always voted Republican. I, I was raised, I born and raised in a Republican family back in Texas, straight party yeah. Republican. But when I was in my early 20s and started reading um, voting records and bills, I I realized <laughs> I'm not a Republican. <laughs> right. I, I'm an independent. I, I am very left in a lot of my social positions. And I think there's a lot of people like that, that they just vote how they're raised in their families to vote, but they don't necessarily know what those policy positions are. Because if you look at the GOP in, what was it, 1956, their party platform, I mean, it reads like a Democratic oh, platform a- now. Absolutely. And, and it reads like a Bernie platform. No, You're being yes. gracious to call it Democrat. <laughs> Yes, and, and there are there's an organization, uh, the Manifesto Project, based in Europe, that categorizes um, countries and their voting histories as to where they fall on a spectrum, center, right, or, or left. Mm-hmm. And the United States was left for, for a very long period of time. In fact, in Montana, we were entirely blue. In FDR's time period, and then there was one county. In 1932, Sweetgrass County was the only county that voted Republican. In 1936, we were entirely blue. In 1940, there was three, six, eight counties that voted Republican. Even by 1964, we were still the majority blue. And... Since neoliberalism's rise with Nixon and worse with Reagan, it has just gotten steadily and steadily more and more red. And there is a lot of people that don't realize, and I'm not advocating voting Democratic Party by any means. I'm very independent right now. I'm, I'm very angry at the Democratic Party. But... There's a lot of people that don't realize their own needs and they're voting. And in 2016, there was, uh, I think it was the New York Times or the Washington Post, had put up infographics that were talking about the using the 2016 county election maps. Mm-hmm. Where, where the GDP was, the highest GDP was typically in democratic states heavily democratic cities and the mass amount of counties receiving help needing help voted predominantly republican against oh yeah that's a given 
against their own needs and values. But Democrats have lost their way. They they are no longer the party of the people. And they evidence it with everything that they're stepping in and doing. I, I, I feel like they've lost a tremendous amount of trust of the American people. Well, that's the message they're being given. You know, Joe Biden stole the election, even though he had, you know, nine million more votes than the other guy. It was stolen. So keep sending him money so he can uh, fix the terrible, flawed election. I, I see it as low information voters are twisted and confused by labels. And they have been taught socialism is the stuff of the devil. It's the devil's excrement. You know, it has hooves and horns. And um, even though their their great, you know, figure Jesus was, uh, uh, you know, a um, you know a poster child for socialism and collectivism, they, um, you know, they stick to their guns and say, no, no. Biden's a socialist. No. <laughs> Got to vote against it. I don't want to be confused by things like policies or quality of life or the country's future. We're not going to be socialists. I'd rather live under a tarp um, in the in the in the park and eat my food with a sterno can than be a socialist. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on right now. But I think part of this, a lot of this, I'll go back and lay again at the feet of corporate media. And in a lot Mm -hmm. of sense, it's like Noam Chomsky's 10 strategies and manipulation by the media. And the Mm -hmm. third one is the gradual strategy. It's austerity, incrementalism. And they incrementally co-opt the vocabulary, the the terminology that is used to define programs, social programs. So when we look at snowplows, city snowplows, state snowplows that are out there plowing our road during the winter so that we have safe passage, uh, that's socialism. That's part of our democratic socialism within this country. Our tax dollars pay for that. But they, they would rather word things in such a way and, and, define welfare moms as takers rather than helping people when they need it and so that we have safety nets to help or libraries uh, fire departments police departments i don't want to live in a society in a culture that unless you pay mafia shakedown prices (laughs) for protection for help that the only way you're going to get it is if you are wealthy enough to be able to afford it. And if we collectively use our tax dollars for these social services, we benefit. The benefits in the 30s and the 40s that were enacted by the New Deal are times of the greatest prosperity in the United States. Yeah, it, actually in the world. <laughs> We, you know, we went for a place that was on the verge of social revolution with working people, you know, battling the Pinkertons, yeah. who within a generation or two are being an example to the world of what could happen if everybody got a shot and everyone was pulling on the oars. Yep. 
Well, Except that all of a sudden that wasn't good enough any longer. We had to go back to our gilded age and revere and worship um, obscene wealth for its own sake. Yeah, that's what Jesus was all about, you know. <laughs> well, um, one thing I want to add before we uh, end this uh, great discussion, um, and we could go longer, I am certain of that, uh, that uh, the, um, the, the idea that the uh, Democratic uh, label has been really uh, spoiled. I mean, in terms of uh, the, the Democratic Party no longer being the party of the working class um, and uh, the mistrust, I think, I think some of the, the real anger at that from Trump supporters, for instance, right, comes from uh, not so much maybe that they don't believe, you know, Trump is all that great uh, necessarily, but that uh, the Democrats have betrayed the working class time and time again. Once, you, you know, right after Reagan, uh, when Bill Clinton came into office, you know, uh, I think there's a lot to be said that he that Bill Clinton really started to embody, and the third way, the Democratic third way, the what was oh, the yeah. what was the name of the um, the Democratic? Uh, uh, there, there was an organization back then. It's now since disbanded, but which basically accommodated itself to neoliberalism, which means now you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which which means that thro- it it throws working class people under the bus. That's what that means. In, yeah. in order to serve the wealthy. And I think, I think that, that, you know, I have, I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of people who aren't Democrats and a lot of people who are working class and that, and the, the, the sheer anger and hatred of the Democrats is palpable because yeah. of the betrayal. I think, I think that's not too strong of a word, betrayal uh, of, of the working class. And, uh, hence, and too bad we don't. We at a at future show we should go into what are the alternatives? Either you know reforming the Democrats, making them the working class party again, or creating a third party that would um, represent the working class interests. Or even, I mean, there's been some things about well, is the Republican Party going to become the party of the working class? Which I don't think is going to happen, but. <laughs> But but you know it's it's because the Democrats have uh, have essentially given up right in 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 we see this just in in this last vote over the two thousand dollars stimulus right that uh, yes. our our own John Tester right uh, essentially undermined Bernie Sanders uh, is attempt to force Mitch McConnell to bring up the two thousand dollars stimulus check to a vote. And instead of siding with the working class, our Senator Tester and other Senator, Democratic senators uh, voted, uh, voted, you know, basically went against that. And, um, and wh- so, you know, where, where, where's the working class supposed to go, right? And, and, and apparently nowhere. That's, we're supposed to disappear, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so. I think that's the lesson, Mark, in this society, the way it's structured and the and- where the power comes from, working people are um, are a means to an end. There's no real plan about incorporating them into the culture as anything more than gullible consumers. 
Right. Kid, they've had their education is streamlined so that they're given vocational skills and the ability to make money for somebody else, but to have to live within their own skin and have a soul and a heart and a brain and be able to make decisions that move the commons forward and the society as a whole forward instead of dreaming about, uh, you know, what's your next cell phone going to look like? Yeah. It's not happening. Yeah. That's, that's to be a... You know, I hate to sound like some, you know, new age uh, left coast guy, but there has to be <laughs> a reexamination of what human beings should be and how they should treat each other. Yeah. You know, yep. not unlike the guy that 2000 years ago was walking around, you know, be- before he was rich and he had an AK-47 and you know, <laughs> he's uh, he was saying, you know, to well, thine I- own self be true. Well, well, Catherine. The Democrats have always been conflicted. You know, if you look at the party historically, it turned into this, into this um, almost like Chibberdus. Only had two heads instead of three. You know, you had you had the big city machines, and you had the Southerners, and it was really a collection of everybody that didn't feel comfortable in the GOP, and uh, and they somehow won elections by putting up with each other. Well, the Southern Dixiecrats, they're notorious oh, yeah. hijacking. You know, Democrats. same era we were talking about, Harry Truman. Yep. yep. It, and you know, Adlai Stevenson and Earl Faubus were in the same party and got along. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it didn't do the country any good. But politics is sausage making, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that, um, and uh, we we all hope you listeners um, uh, this helps you think and and maybe reflect upon this past year, which was uh, a terrible year. Uh, and uh, if you want to watch something that's humorous that covers this too, uh, humorous as a gallows humor. Um, on Netflix, there's a, 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 a movie called Death to 2020 that just came out. Um, <laughs> I would I would recommend watching it. It's quite funny. It and it skewers everybody left and right and whatever. Um, but um, but anyway, we are now in 2021, and uh, we hope you join us uh, next week for our show, Voice of the People, Radio by and for the 99 percent. And you are listening to it on KFGM 105.5 FM in the Missoula Valley, um, 1055kfgm.org, live streaming on the Internet. And you can listen to that anywhere you have an Internet uh, uh, signal. And then um, also on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify or other podcast apps as Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And I want to thank you, Jim, and I want to thank you, Catherine, for both being on the show. And uh, Thank you, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. And Catherine. And, and we will, uh, and please stay tuned uh, to listen to Jonathan Tassini and his show, Working Life. Will they make him love again? Will 
Democracy is coming 